Those announcements did feel like a sermon because I yawned. Hopefully you got your yawn out, so you wanted to do it now as I'm preaching. No, it's because it's a warm building. That's why we yawn, right? We get comfortable. Something like that. <laughs> well, this morning we are uh, continuing our series in First Peter, and we are going to read uh, from verse 3 through verse 12, but our concentration will be verses 10, 11, and 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you Do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Holy Spirit, we ask, we ask for your help in understanding your word. We ask that your word would come alive as we interact with Jesus in this message, in your word. Father, change our lives. We want your will. We don't want our will. Reveal your will. May we look, may we find it, discover it, love it, and be blessed by living in it. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in college, I had a microbiology class. And I had aspirations of doing medical school and stuff, and microbiology taught me, I'm not doing that. (laughs) It was the single hardest class I ever encountered in my life, still now, in my life. (laughs) It It was a trial of its own, because I literally, for an entire semester, had no clue what anybody was talking about. I would go, uh, and a bunch of us, I uh, was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we, a bunch of us would get together, we had the class together, we'd get together and study, I literally would be like this while they're going back and forth. And I, I stopped them one time, I said, how do you know that? He said, well, Dr. Sokolovsky said it in class. I said, I was, when? when? I've been to every class, I've never heard anything remotely near that. 
but they're all celebrating. Isn't God great because this is so cool and stuff? I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, not only was there a lecture, there was a lab, and, and in the lab, which typically you have in sciences, uh, was a, a man from India who taught the class. He was from India, and so you really had to focus on listening to what he was saying first, because it was the same effect. What did he just say? And I can't imitate an Indian dialect, but it was a thick one, and we're just... He's saying these Latin terms. We have no idea what he's talking about. Well, we did this one experiment. We had these little, we had to grow a culture of a bacteria. And it was this little round Petri dish. We had to have your inoculating loop, and we dipped it in the vial with the bacteria. We had to spread it on the Petri dish. We put it in the incubator, and a few days later came back and looked at it under a microscope and made notes about what it was and stuff. I remembered the name of that simply because it was just oddly in my head. Now, when we were doing that, I had no idea what I was dealing with. But do you know what we had in that inoculating loop that I was just spreading like this that was very inches away from my hand with no gloves? Staphylococcus aureus. Staph infection. It was, I think back now and go, Lord, thank you for your mercy because... <laughs> I don't remember the teacher telling us, be careful. I have no recollection of that. Just a bunch of college kids going, okay, what do we have to do today? All right, what are we, what are we doing for lunch? That's what we want, because I just want to eat lunch. I had absolutely no idea what I was holding in my hand. I had no idea of its power, I, deadly power. I had no idea what it would do to me if it just got on my hand from that little loop that I stuck in the vial. Well, in a similar way, I think Peter is bringing up the prophets as an example to his readers, to the elect exiles. He's bringing the prophets up as an example to let them know you have to remember what you have, this great, powerful salvation in the midst of your sufferings. You have to, re you have to know what you have. Because it gives you fresh perspective on how to be careful, how, how to live life, how to do things that are going to be productive for the kingdom of God. But he's letting them know, I think, with using the prophets, hey, these guys, which we're going to look into a little bit as we go through this, these guys didn't have what you have. Know what you got. Because what you have is now prepared you to be better for your suffering. That's what you see in your notes, better for it. That means... Peter is telling his readers, look, on this side of Christ, you're better for suffering because of, of what you have in your understanding and what you have in your experience of this salvation. Now, what is the salvation? He says that. This mercy from the Father through Christ. This mercy that sought every one of us. Well, we didn't care about God. We didn't want to know what he was doing. We didn't care who he was about. We were only caring about what we desired to do, and we were going 100 miles an hour into our own will. But he says, no, I'm going to come and stop you and interrupt your life, intercept you in your path of destruction, and I'm going to show you my love, and I'm going to let you know that you're not right with me. You have your sin is an offense before me, but I've dealt with that sin. I've sent my son to come to be the perfect sacrifice for your sin. He died, he rose to secure forgiveness 
and redemption and adoption for you. Trust me. And we said, sure. That's a great salvation. But I think all too often, especially in our culture, the way we live life, we don't realize what we have. And so we encounter different trials and different aspects of suffering that are coming. And I would, I would boil it down to three categories of suffering for us. There's suffering that's the result of our own personal sin. Sadly, too many of us are too acquainted with that. It's the, it's the consequences that have come because of our own sin. It's the judgment of God against us because of our own sin and our own sins of neglect, sins of uh, we just want to rebel. There's another sin that is uh, being sinned against, or struggling rather, suffering that's being sinned against in broken relationships where things don't go right and misunderstandings, miscommunications. There's a, a struggling sometimes within relationships. There's a struggling when somebody has sinned against us and we don't quite know what to do and we're trying to figure out how to respond, but we'd rather ignore the person forever than be biblical and talk through things. But that's just, it's a, a suffering there's another suffering that is just living in a fallen world. It results uh, with sickness, pain, whether it be chronic or acute. It results in financial hardships. It results in parenting struggles that don't end. Just knowing of parents in the church that have grown kids, you're still struggling for your kids. You're still suffering with them as they're going through their own suffering, their own trials. This is the suffering that because of what God has done for you, you're better for it. And Peter's bringing up the prophets to let you know, let, let his readers know, ultimately let us know that, look, it wasn't always this way. They didn't have the experience that we benefit from. They, don't, they didn't have the experience of adoption. We have that experience with God to be called God's sons and God's daughters. They didn't have that. But yet we live in the good of that, and, and we experience that in great measure. Peter Davids, in his commentary on 1 Peter, said, Peter stresses that far from being underprivileged, Christians have received special favor from God. The prophets spoke indeed of grace, of salvation, but the deliverance prophesied did not belong to them, but to the Christians reading this letter. However much these readers may be suffering, they stand in a position that even the greatest of the ancient prophets did not have. See, we read the Old Testament, and we read these prophets and think, you knew God. But they look right back at us and say, no, 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 you know God in a way that we never, ever did. Isn't that amazing? David longed for what we we're experiencing. Isaiah longed for what we were experiencing. Amos, all the prophets. See, this grace, uh, this grace of salvation, I think it, it positions us and it protects us as Christians. It positions us to be comforted within our suffering, within our trial. It positions us to, okay, God, you, you're with me. So now I have, some, I have a position of assurance to know that your promise is that you'll never leave or forsake me. So I can trust that even though I feel like you're nowhere to be found, you are with me. And I can, I can stand on that promise and believe it. Positions for comfort, for assurance. I think it also positions us to be grateful. To understand what we have. And to be grateful no matter what our circumstance is. 
we experience something of God that is for us only in all of history to experience. It also protects us as Christians. It protects us from self-pity and self-condemnation within our sufferings because it can get very easy. Sufferings have uh, this, this power in and of themselves to distract us from knowing who we are in Christ and being reminded of that. So, it, it, which usually ends up in woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, or this is, this is my fault, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm no good. Self-pity, self-condemnation, these are dangerous because they cloud the gospel for us. They cloud this great salvation to where we, we're looking through things and we can't, we can't make sense of life because we're not grounded. Wait a minute, it's not self-pity, it's no, selfless, look, Christ, oh, that's what I need to be captured with now. The salvation and remembering that, knowing what we have, protects us from just being absorbed in ourselves. Now, Peter gives these examples, and, and I think he wants us to learn from these examples. He wants us to learn from the prophets. Now, just to quickly, just to go through who the prophets were, just so we can know who we're talking about. Peter most, uh, most probably has the Old Testament prophets in mind. And formally, that's in your Bibles from Isaiah all the way through to Malachi. That would be the section of our Old Testament known as the prophets. Uh, you've got the law, you've got history, you've got literature, which is the poetic writings, and then you've got the prophets. That's how our Old Testament is situated. It's not in chronological order, it's just by those sections. He's got formally probably those in mind, but if you, if you look into the prophets, really the first prophecy came from God himself in Genesis 3, verse 15, when God promises that the seed of the woman crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the seed's heel. God spoke the first prophecy. Everybody that came after that was just speaking his word for him. And now they had a common message. The, the, uh, the prophets were speaking, Isaiah through Malachi, had a, a basically two, two things within there. I'm hesitating because the prophets that came before Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, uh, you've got an Obadiah that's in there. They came with a judgment message. They were, they were looking to Israel saying, you, you've sinned. You're no longer faithful to God. You've broken his covenant. Repent, repent. That's what they're saying. And you don't hear much hope. But the two things that you hear from Isaiah through is judgment and hope. There's a judgment that says no you're wrong, you've broken the covenant, repent, and God's going to execute judgment on you. He's going to judge all the nations around you because they're idolaters too. He's going to judge everybody, but there's also a hope. He's going to save a people for himself, and he's going he's to take from that people, and there's going to be one that's going to come that's going to be fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, and he will be the one to establish what will never, ever go away. Huge stuff. Vaughn Roberts helps us in his book, God's Big Picture, Long sections in the prophetic books are devoted to exposing the people's sin and announcing God's judgment against it. The prophets spoke to their own day. They were forth-tellers, not just foretellers. And their main message was one of judgment. God's covenant, which is the basis of the prophet's message of judgment, is also the basis of another major theme in their books, hope. While their history proclaimed the failure of Israel, the prophets proclaimed the future of Israel. They speak of good times ahead in terms of, in terms of action replay. Do you remember what it was like in the good old days under Moses, David, and Solomon, they ask? Well, 
it will be like that again in the future, only much better. There will be a new exodus, a new covenant, a new nation, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new king, and even a new creation. Can you imagine them hearing that? They're, the prophets are facing, you've got the time period from Israel's exile, Isaiah's right before that saying, hey, God's bringing judgment. Then into Jeremiah, God brings the judgment, and then, then there's exile. Judah is being exiled. People are being extracted from that area, brought to Babylon to live and dwell. And God, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a smart leader. He brought all the nobles and all of the people of high import. He brought their children to Babylon and had them educated in his own court so they'd be thinking like he would. And so he leaves. Who he left there was, was all the poor people. But there's a picture there. There's a picture that when God does something great, he doesn't take the best, the brightest, the smartest. He takes those who are poor. Those are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God does that all through. And he tells, Moses tells Israel, God didn't choose you because of the biggest and the greatest. He chose you because you were the poorest. And Paul then saying, Don't, no boasting, because God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. So that means all of us that are God's children are the fools. But God's doing something enormous with this that the prophets are getting in on the foothills of. They just want to get Israel back. They want to see the temple back. The temple has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They just want to get that back. That's their goal. That's their longing. Why? Why the temple? Because what left the temple is what they want back. The very presence of their God. Through their sin, they had lost that presence, and it's gone. They don't know, God, when will you bring this presence back? When will you bring to your people your presence again? There's a longing. There's an anticipation. You hear that as you read the prophets. Peter's bringing that out for his readers, for them to remember. The prophets, they were looking for something that you have. See, the prophets searched and inquired. Uh, they looked for the fulfillment of their own prophecies. They would get something from the Lord and look into it. They were looking for the one that would come and end all the suffering that they were experiencing. The Old Testament prophets suffered. They were elect exiles as well. But they're looking for the one who would come to be the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. And this looking, this, this searching and inquiring carefully, it brings the connotation. This is an intense looking. Last fall, uh, beginning of the fall in September, we took a trip to Disney World in one of those parks. Disney's got blessing and cursing all at the same time. And this is one of those stories. Because it distracts adults too. It distracts kids, it distracts adults. So we were in Animal Kingdom and we were going to, of course, because of me, we race everywhere, and that's one of my, it becomes an irritant to the rest of my family is what it does. <laughs> I confess that, hon, there's healing in confession. <laughs> well, we, we're, I'm trying to slow down. We're trying to get on the safari because we need to go somewhere else afterwards, and I'm always thinking of the next place we need to go, so let's go over here, let's do this, and we go in, and this is a long line. We're in this line. We're going around and around. We're stopping. We're talking. And then we move. We're stopping and talking. And then we go this way. Take a step. Stop and talk. And this is a good 15 minutes. We look around. We're almost getting on. We're counting now. We're all the way. We're counting for the seats. We look around. Where's Beth? 
and oh, my heart dropped. We know that feeling as parents, just And at that moment, I didn't care about anything, of course, except finding Beth. And it was as if, thinking about it later, you can think about this. It was as if I'm walking out and I'm not, I'm tuning everything out. I think there was a parade getting getting ready to start. It was forming up, which she had turned aside to look at. And we kept walking. That was the, the thing that happened. And she's here with us, so you know the end of the story. She's over in Children's Church. Um, she had turned to look. To She saw this big, huge thing. And she said, I turned around, and you weren't there. But there, it was as if all sound and all my sensories just were focused on finding Beth. And it, my physical appearance changed because I was looking forward to the point that a lady said, are you looking for your daughter? <laughs> yes, I am. She said, I could tell. She was right over here. The cast member had found her. So, oh, just grabbed her and held her. But that, that, that combination of searching and relief is the aspect of this searching and inquiring. That's, it's an intensity that's beyond just a casual pondering, wondering, Maybe if. It's not sitting back in recliners and just talking about possibilities. They are actively looking and pursuing. Where is this Christ? Where is this one that's been promised? Is he going to come now? Is he going to come later? What's he going to look like? Who's he going to be? How, is he going to be one of us? I don't know. It's, they've got all the possibilities. Now, we have history on our side that we can go back and look to see how Jesus has fulfilled that. They didn't have that. They're looking, they're intense. They looked for the Christ who would suffer. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 53. We'll start at verse 2. We've got a few different sections we're going to read through, so hang with me. Isaiah 53, um, probably one of the best pictures of Christ's suffering that we have in the Old Testament, in, all in, compacted in one place. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. That is so weird to think about because Christ is so beautiful to us. That I don't, we, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have noticed him walk down the street had not God in that. If we were there with him that day, given us the faith, just like he did to Peter and all the disciples to be able to say, you, you're the Messiah. That's what's going on. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. 
all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall come the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now imagine Isaiah getting this. Receiving it from the Lord and speaking it out. Have you ever had that moment where you're sharing the gospel with somebody and scriptures are coming to your mind and you have no idea that you knew those scriptures? Hopefully it's not one of those. I know this is in the Bible somewhere and uh, you're quoting that one. Hopefully you've got a book and a destination. The Lord just brings that back to your mind. Because that's the promise. The Spirit will do that. Jesus gives us that promise to all of his disciples. The Spirit will speak for you in that moment. Well, in that moment, usually we back up and kind of go... Well, that was pretty cool. Maybe in a covenant group, something, as you're speaking, something comes together and you think, well, I need to listen to that because that was kind of good. I need to listen to that now. I wonder if Isaiah had that type of experience here. He, he puts this out and he just says, oh, I got to look at that again. Let me write that down. We got to check this out. I think he did. This is huge because what, they're looking for one who would come and, be, and restore and be everything that they long to be and fulfill all the, prom- the promises to Abraham about putting his people in this nation. They would be their own nation and all that's messed up now. But God, restore it. Will you please restore it? That's what they're longing for, looking for. And God comes and says, I'm going to restore it. But the first thing I have to do is deal with your sin. I have to deal with your heart so it can, it can be in a way that you'll never turn away from me again. And the first thing is the Christ will suffer. And all the prophets then are looking for the Christ. Who is this one that will suffer? They're also looking for the subsequent glories. If you turn to Jeremiah 31, one book to the right. Verse 31. They have a promise that one, the Messiah will come. He will suffer for the sins of his people and they will be saved. They they will be accounted righteous because of his sacrifice. And God says through Jeremiah, behold, verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. 
and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say, each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Here, Jeremiah is receiving this word on top of what he's spoken through Isaiah. And most probably they had the writings of Isaiah. It wasn't nice and crisp form like we have it. But it was, they probably were very familiar with what Isaiah, God was saying through Isaiah. And they know there's one that's coming that he has to deal with the problem of our own sin. We've tried to do this. But in their minds, they've got the sacrificial system. But what they're hearing is one will come to do away with all that. They've seen a lot of bloodshed and sacrifice in their lives from their own sacrifices they have to bring, from the Day of Atonement that happened every year to be able to come and make, uh, make an offering for the entire sin of the nation where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. This was a huge deal. And God is saying, like the law is in the covenant under that mercy seat, the law will now be in every one of them. See, we read that and think, yeah. This was enormous for Old Testament hearers. And that's one of the things we have to know what we have. We have to know, wait a minute, what are we dealing with? This is something that these prophets longed for, they looked for, they wanted to participate in. They could only imagine what it would be like if God's law was put in their hearts. Then Ezekiel 36 comes and they find out it's his very spirit that's in them. What is that like? But yet it gets to be our daily experience with the assurance that if we are God's child, his presence like it left the temple, will never, ever leave us. That's amazing for us. And they're looking into this. They're looking, and they're trying to figure out, but they have not experienced like we have. They also desired to know the when. They wanted to know when this was going to happen. You know, their curiosity was no different than ours. If we live now, we want to know when, what time, what person. Look at Daniel chapter 9, two books over, one past Ezekiel. This is cool. This is a really cool chapter in the Bible. Daniel shows us what it's like to be anticipating and looking because we find that in verse 2 of chapter 9. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He's reading, the, he's looking He's searching in Jeremiah. God, when are you going to bring us back? Because the 70 years is almost up. There's an anticipation that Daniel has. He's looking in God's word to say, when is this going to happen? Now he, then he prays. And the rest of the, the next section of this, he's praying, he's confessing his sin on behalf of the nation and confessing again to, the, to God the sin of his people. God, we, we were not a faithful bride to you. But will you restore, will you, and in the language it's, will you restore Jerusalem? The place that your presence resided and we knew we were your people. 
and you are our God. This is what God says to him. Verse 17, now therefore, O O our God, this is the end of his prayer, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He's appealing, God, we're your people, remember. And there was hope. There's hope in the prophets as well. And this is how God responds. While I was speaking and praying, it's verse 20, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, For the holy hill of my God, which I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. There's something in here. that speaks of the power of prayer and our participation with God's kingdom through prayer that's enormous. When Daniel prayed, a word went out. The picture there is God spoke something, but he waited for Daniel to ask him. God, restore. A word goes out. Gabriel's just coming, not to tell him the word. Look, I'm letting you know what was set in motion when you prayed because it's gonna be a delay. Verse 24 70 weeks. These are 77s, seven periods of seven years. The math is in there, but we'll go through. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. One other time in the Old Testament is this word used. It's the word Messiah. This and in Psalm 2-2. The anointed one shall be cut off. Sorry, I skipped. A prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks... It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood and the end, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of that week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Do you know what he's saying here? And this is a study for another time, but basically, Gabriel is pinpointing for Daniel when the Messiah would come. Basically, Through Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem's going to be built. It's going to be rebuilt in troubled times. It was. Ezra and Nehemiah certainly rebuilt it in troubled times. But all of this is fulfilled with Christ in the first century. 
And all of this, he's actually saying 483 years, the math kind of works out if you're interested, if you're one of those nerd numbers, numbers nerds, you can ask me about that. Because some people get really geeked up about, yeah, this is so cool, numbers, and it all works out and stuff. I have, to, I have to read it and study it for a while before it clicks with me. But if you're that way, you can come. I'll try to explain it to you. He basically says in 483 years, the Messiah will be there. And how it works out math-wise when Daniel received this is A.D. 26, when it's very believed that that was the year that Jesus began his ministry. And he said half of that week, half of that seven years, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, the anointed one will be cut off. And then after that, the city will be destroyed until he comes one day to build a new one. He's telling Gabriel... Here's when it's going to happen. I'm sorry, Gabriel's telling Daniel, here's when it's going to happen. Here's the answer to your prayer. Now, we can look back and fill in all the slots. We have history on our side. Daniel gets the answer, and he just says, whoa, that's kind of cool. But you know what he probably did? He probably taught those around him how to do that. And he, Daniel was most probably a magi, the three guys, the three wise men that came to see Jesus when he was born. Daniel was one of those, most probably in Persia. He taught them to read the stars, to know when that star would be there, the star of David, to be able to know when he was born. So through the influence of Daniel searching, the three wise men show up to present gifts to the king of the Jews. They were looking, they were searching, they were inquiring. I think from this, we... We can take away two things to learn from the prophets. One is we still need to search for Christ in our lives. He has been revealed. He's being experienced by us, but we can still look for him in our lives just like the prophets did. We search for his revealed character in his word. We search for it in the church. We search for it as we grow in sanctification, as we grow in our holiness and Christ-likeness. That's where we're looking for Jesus. The prophets were looking for Jesus. We, too, can still do that. We search for the subsequent glories. We want a greater knowledge of God. We want to be obedient to God's word. We want to grow in holiness. We want to experience the Holy Spirit. These subsequent glories that the prophets longed for, we get to experience on a daily basis. Let's be looking for them, even amidst the suffering that we experience. You've probably heard many times from this pulpit, from teaching uh, different places, and from a book, uh, The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, to preach the gospel to yourself. I remember hearing that. First of all, you have to figure out, what's that, what does that mean? You need to have the gospel before you know how to preach it to yourself. So you need to understand the basis of the gospel. But in that, when somebody says that to you, and when you think about the gospel in your own life, has the gospel and you preaching that to yourself, has it become old to you or deep to you? Because I think it hinges on the faith that we look are looking for Christ. If the gospel is simply old, I think we don't have the faith to look at it correctly. Because the gospel should be deeper and deeper and deeper in our understanding and in our experience of the, the awesomeness of what Christ has done. We also need to be anticipating Christ's return. We have the promise in the New Testament that he's coming back. When Jesus was raised uh, or ascended, the angel said, don't, don't stop looking up. He's coming back. And it's going to be glorious when he comes back, so be ready when he comes back. 
Now, it, we shouldn't shy away from, you know, we have to be careful about trying to pinpoint the time and, and place of Jesus' return. I know a lot of Christians are into that, and for whatever reasons, that's what they get really excited about. My concern with that is too often, I think, people that I've come across, they are so excited about when Jesus is coming back and all the revelation prophecies and stuff that they use it as a distraction or as a reason for not pursuing sanctification in their own lives. We need to be balanced. We, we don't want to avoid the prophecies about Jesus coming back, but nor do we have to make them everything to us to where we get so excited about, oh, it's going to be this, and this person's going to come, and it's going to be like that. Because you talk to some people, and they really are excited about that stuff. It's kind of, can we just pray? Can we pray together? Believe in the pan theory, you'll just pan out in the end. Ever heard that before? I remember, uh, now I think what the lesson we learned from Daniel is the anticipation. Daniel didn't know exactly when it would come, but he certainly had an anticipation from there. I think we can learn from that anticipation. I remember I was in middle school in 1987, and there was a big, huge ad in the paper, 87 reasons that Jesus will return in 1987. Do you all remember that? <laughs> I, I am still convicted today that I don't live with the anticipation that I had at 12 years old <laughs> when I was in middle school looking up. Of course, then it was really helpful to say, I'm never going to use this again. I don't have to pay attention to school. Jesus is coming back today. <laughs> it worked for one day. I remember looking up. I remember I had this weird, I didn't know, understand what was going on. And we just, yeah, sure, Jesus is coming back. And, um, but I, I lived differently that day. I lived with an anticipation that this week when I thought about that, I said, you know, I, I can't remember another day in my life where I live with that same type of anticipation of Jesus coming back. No matter when, we need to be anticipating that because that, it influences and it, um, it, it I don't have the word, it, it educates us, and informs us. It informs us of how we're supposed to be living out life today. Because what we have to realize, like the prophets, is that they were part of something bigger. Peter tells them, you were not, they, it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves. They were serving us. They weren't serving themselves. They weren't going to see the fulfillment of the promise. But they were writing all that down so those who did see it could run with it. We are the ones that benefit from that. But, but Peter puts a little tag on to the end of chapter 12, verse 12, chapter 1. He says, things into which now this is what has now been announced to you through the preaching of the good news, through the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. We have to realize that we too are, are part, and, and Keith had this last week with the Google Earth image. When you back up enough and have the proper perspective, eventually we get to the perspective of the angels. who are not tainted sinfully in their perspective. But they are looking. Peter lets us know that we are part of something bigger. Angels are looking for the revelation of Christ in us as we battle sin and are victorious. As we, as we respond Christ-like when we've been sinned against. And when we encounter those difficulties in life where it's just a struggle and a trial, whether it's parenting or financial hardships, Broken relationships, pain, sickness, 
angels are looking at something in us. But too often, so I put in your, in your notes there, <clears throat> I think we can get, because oftentimes we're too based on our feelings and not enough on the word of God, but oftentimes we feel like we're in a coliseum being, being torn apart by beasts and animals. And the applause in a coliseum are for what? More pain, more gore. They love it. They want it. They ate it. They, oh, they, they thrived on the pain and the gore. But if we're, if, if we're not feeling right, we can start to think, God, I'm just in a coliseum because everything's coming against me. And I, I, I feel like, God, you're absent, you're silent, or maybe even we let our mind go to think, God, you're punishing me for something. You're, you're, you've got to be punishing me because there's only pain and there's only gore and it keeps on coming. And the applause that we're hearing and the yells that we're hearing are more of more, more, more. But that's the wrong image. See, what we have and we need to be hearing is the thunderous applause of the angels. That every time they see our faith refined, as it though were fire refining us, there's applause. More! Father, more! Jesus is there! More! Jesus is there! Every time in relationships, when there's restoration, more Jesus, victory over sin, more Jesus is being seen by the angels. God, God has not let them know something about himself because he wants them to see it in us. Now, how do we respond? We respond with gratitude. Thank you, God. We respond with knowing what we have and being reminded of that. But we respond by saying, Lord, not my will, your will. And we, we participate in the joy inexpressible that's filled with glory. When we yield ourselves to the Lord and say, God, no matter what, we sang it this morning. Whatever God brings to me, though he slay me, I will hope. Though he slay me, I'm still looking for Jesus. I'm looking for it. I'm looking for him in my own life. I'm looking for him in the lives of the people that I'm around, in the church that we're a part of. I'm looking for him because I know the Father's getting glory. And as the angels are even looking at that, the Father is getting glory. We applaud the glory of Christ with our own hands. We applaud the glory of Christ with our obedience. And we applaud the glory of Christ with our joy. Let's stand up together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for coming to this earth as a man, living our life, acquainted with our sorrows and griefs. Thank you for being the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for forgiveness. Lord, thank you that we have been adopted by you.
we have been redeemed. Lord, the, the doctrines that we love to rehearse, Lord, may they not become old, but may they, may they be very deep to us. Father, take us deeper into the glories of Christ, into his sufferings, to the subsequent glories, so we too can see Jesus all over the place. We only want Jesus. We only want Jesus. God, thank you that we get to live in the promises of what you, uh, many of the promises that you have, but there's, we know there's a component of not yet. We're going to be in heaven with you where it's the ultimate fulfillment of all of your promises. We, oh, we want the anticipation for heaven. <laughs> we want the anticipation to be with you without sin, but we want to be here looking for Jesus and being, being okay with being a display of your glory to others around us, no matter what vehicle you choose to have us experience whether that's whatever suffering, whatever area of struggle. Jesus, we want you to be seen.